Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name's Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. We've got a legend in the house, man. Peter Chung, the great animation director. Uh, typically, I would say, name some books. Name some books in the bibliography. But Jim, I'm going to have you name a couple of things in the filmography, and we'll just get launched right into things. Sounds good. Uh, you know, first thing I would say is, has worked for everybody in a 40-year career in animation. Disney, Bakshi, Warner Brothers, uh, Nickelodeon, MTV. Some of the standout stuff for our audience is probably Transformers and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles early on, but uh, Rugrats and Aeon Flux is probably when he really enters our sphere uh, with MTV's Liquid Television. Uh, as of late, Animatrix, Revision Tomb Raider, uh, Fire Breather, just a spectacular career that really spans several types of animation and uh, very influ influential to multiple generations at this point. Pete, thanks for thanks for coming by the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Oh, my pleasure. So very glad to meet you two guys and enjoyed what you what you're doing. I, I've watched a lot of your interviews with uh, some of my friends and colleagues. You, you, your name has yeah. come up a couple of times for sure. Yeah. One one of the big questions I've always uh, wanted to ask. This is this is huge for me, Jimmy, because like I often look scour the net for for Peter Chung interviews and wisdom and it's super cool to to get a chance to record a, a, a big win because I, like I just you can't find as much as I want and one of the things is that I think of you Peter as as a visionary creator uh, a, tr a true artist an auteur whatever label you want to put on that um, but in animation like you chose this collaborative and sometimes corporate uh medium industry like it requires a, a lot of people to to get your vision across uh, i guess one question i have because i think we'll be on this topic for a little while today one question i have is do you have a particular part of your art practice that's that's unique to you that doesn't you don't have to share it with anybody like do you keep a very active sketchbook everything every, everything everything i do is like that as far as i'm concerned i i work even though animation is a very collaborative medium i don't like the atmosphere of a bustling animation studio and i especially don't like the way animation is produced in the u.s um especially with feature animation because everything is based on pitching your ideas to a room full of people and that's one aspect of animation production that i really dislike and so as far as my uh, i don't know how you put it my my secret private process um <laughs> i i tend to be very um guarded about what i show um work in progress um when you work at a American animation studio, everybody wants to have a say in everything you're doing at every stage. And I feel much more comfortable about working on something and getting it into a state where I feel happy about uh, being able to publicly show it. Because I'm very hard on myself. I mean, the, the person who gives the hardest notes on my work is me. It's always going to be me. I'm always going to be much tougher than 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 any of the other people in the room and so um i don't find usually the the, the notes of my colleagues when they see my work in progress very helpful <laughs> because they're not seeing the the problems that i'm trying to solve myself they're not even seeing what the problems are that i'm trying to solve and so 
when they give me notes, I don't find it very useful. Are there are there times you have to kind of grab the bull by the horns when when you see a, a flaw in a piece of animation, and is it tough to communicate this stuff to the people you're working with, and you have to just get in there? Uh, this is a you're very... talking about you're talking you're talking about my own work, or talking about when I'm looking at other people's. Uh, when you're in a collaborative space. Yeah, it's hard. You know, there are people who uh, there are basically, you know, I mean, it's obviously a, a, a gross simplification, but there's basically two types of animation artists um, or professional artists in general. And probably goes across the board no matter what medium it is. But um, there are those who are driven by just wanting to get the job done as quickly as possible. Um, and they're not really thinking very deeply about what they're doing, or they don't, they're not really internalizing the, the art part of it. You know, they, they know that they have a, a skill which they can use to make money, and so they just want to know what you want them to do, and they just want to you know, follow your instructions, and they don't have any interest at all in expressing themselves through their work. Um, and you can tell, you can tell, I mean, with, with comic book artists, the same, the same thing applies, you know, there's, there's a lot of people, you know, I, I guess you kind of think of these people as hacks, but they exist. It's actually very prevalent. You, you don't think there are that many because you don't pay attention to them, but it's actually the majority. <laughs> oh, for sure. Like we, we call them, we, we call it jobbers, shovelware, yeah. just t takes, it takes up space on the rack to, to take the buying dollar from, uh, you know, the other yeah. comics that are out there. I think another part of this conversation is going to be there, there, there are some parallels spiritually in terms of the practitioners between animation and uh, and comics. Do you is it does it make sense to to staff your production with a, a couple of these kinds of carpenters, these these job guys that, that can just do some in-betweens or something? Well, in the case of animation, um, in general, the people who are doing in-betweens or cleanups, they're, 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 those people are generally all going to be like that. I mean, some of them may be frustrated, but um, if they have any kind of uh, artistic aspirations, then they try to get out of those, those assisting or, 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 or cleanup positions as quickly as, as they can. And, and usually I'm good at spotting you know, if, if if they're working with me, then they'll they'll show some initiative and and um, they'll they'll usually be given more creative work to do. So it's very hierarchical hierarchical in that sense, especially working overseas, which is what I do a lot of. I I work a lot in Korea and Japan, and and in those uh, studio systems, it's much more hierarchical. To answer your earlier question, yeah, first of all, when you're dealing with somebody like that, when you're trying to give feedback or you're trying to take notes from from suggestions they make, then the first thing you do is you try to figure out what kind of uh, an animator they are. And there are some guys that I've worked with, and no matter how much you try to get them to internalize what they're doing, it's like they they're just not capable of doing it. It's just not in them. And so you have to give them very, very specific instructions, like on this frame, this guy's hand has to move like this up and um, hold and 
it's very frustrating because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them to draw a character expressing himself, giving a performance. They're not interested in trying to pull that out of their own gut. They just want to know, okay, on which frame, where should the hand be? When should he blink? All this kind of stuff. And, and it's like, imagine trying to, trying to direct an actor to perform by telling him, okay, on this frame, blink, turn your, turn your head, pick up this glass on this frame. I mean, you, it's impossible. You can't, you can't possibly get a natural, naturalistic performance out of uh, an actor who wants to be told exactly what to do at every frame without really internalizing the emotion. And yet, that's the way most animation, that's the way most TV animation that you see in the US is done. It's crazy. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a system that's become so entrenched that uh, if you ask an animator, at this point, if you ask an animator if they can put some of their own emotion in, 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 into their, <laughs> put some of their own emotion into the animation, they'll look at you like you're asking them to do something really, uh, really above and beyond what should be expected, even though that is, that's, to me, that's the minimum of, of what they should be. Is that something that's inherent with like the studio system? Um, maybe in American animation, maybe elsewhere, I was going to ask if you've worked other, you know, in other countries or other systems, but is that something that you think is inherent in say American animation systems where in comic books, we see that like, uh, I think editorial no. and publishers don't necessarily want you to be too creative. You know, if you're working on Iron Man, yeah. They sort of want it to look a certain way and they don't want you to rock the boat, so to speak. Do you think that's something that American animation sort of values? Like, come in and just draw? Well, it's very different. Working in TV and working in features is very different. So in features, it's the opposite. Um, it, in a way, they fetishize performance almost to excess to the point where very often I find it difficult to watch a, an American animated feature because all the different scenes are trying to outdo each other, like animators showing off what they can do. And it becomes very busy when you, when you string all those scenes together, they look good in isolation, but you string, you know, a hundred shots together of animators all trying to outdo each other and it becomes too much. It's, it's, it's too rich. So, um, yeah, I guess, I guess you don't know very much about the, the TV animation process, but what you do is you write down all of the directions, like all the instructions to an, for the animator to follow on exposure sheets. And on the exposure sheets, every single line or every frame of film, you know, and there's 24 per second, is um, given a line and you and the director writes down <laughs> for every single line, or for every single frame of film, what the character is supposed to do. And if you have like three or four characters, then you know the sheets can be extremely complicated. Um, and the timing directors have to have to guess what the animator is going to be able to manage. And so it becomes a um, it becomes a shorthand 
for um you know you're, you guys aren't animation guys so this is very arcane stuff and you know maybe i should i, I shouldn't go into it but please but, um, we could keep up go into anything in, in our audience uh is uh a lot of a lot of animators are uh are in the audience so so yeah don't don't get hung up on on that at all our, our channel's built on that kind of thing yeah well so in my experience so you know what you what you're trying to do is the person who writes the exposure sheets um and that's what they're called they're called um sheet timers they have to look at the storyboard and see what kind of emotions or 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 actions are demanded by the storyboard so if in the storyboard the character has to be sad let's say so he's giving a line of dialogue but he has to be he has to show that he's sad so he's thinking okay well how am i going to convey the idea that this character is sad well i'm going to have him droop his head and maybe his shoulders are going to sag okay or you you think of whatever physical gestures are going to indicate that that they're sad right and you write them down but you don't write down but but he doesn't write down that the character is sad it just says shoulders droop head sags and then when the animator overseas gets that they never see the idea that the character is sad they only see that the shoulders are drooping and that and and that's what they they do and then they're never thinking about the emotion that that's motivating all of that they're just looking at the physical signs of that so that that that's what i say that's what i mean you know when i say that a lot of animators um they just want to be told what to do they don't want to have to feel what you know what they they forget what the underlying motivation is for the sheet timer for having chosen these gestures they're just looking at the gestures when uh li listening to like audio commentary tracks on things like the simpsons you often hear the producers just talk about how baffled they were uh, <laughs> whenever they you know used a different st studio uh overseas to handle some animation or even something as simple as like signage on a store it would just be uh, roman characters you know alphabet letters that you and i recognize but strung together they don't even say, say a word and things like this sometimes yeah, so it's a big problem. So when when I do a when I do a show, I always talk about the emotion. You know, I I don't talk about it in terms of and and when when I write sheets, I'll I'll write down like what what the motivating emotion is as well. Um, very often, yeah, you can do that, but still, a lot of animators you know won't care. They'll just, they'll just they're just mechanically doing what they're you know you know blink on frame eight you know raised your hand on frame 16 you know that, that type of thing it's it's very it's a very technical and mechanical process um and for that reason you know i think a lot of people get into animation because they're really fascinated by the process and the process is very complicated and it's very technical and um I think that I used to be more fascinated by that at the beginning, but uh, the longer I do it, like I get very, very bored talking about the process. It applies to, you know, and I guess that some of your viewers may be pissed off if I say, say things like this, but, <laughs> you know, process is not important. 
so all these tutorials that I see of like artists showing how they draw, it's like, don't do that. It's like, it's not interesting. It's like, I don't want to watch you draw. I don't want to see how you, you know, um, manipulate your, your pen to create a brush stroke. It's, 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 it, it's completely unimportant and it's a distraction. It's like, don't think that that has any kind of lasting value to anybody except for process, process nerds. It's, it's that uh, very um, youth, youthful notion uh, when, when you're getting started that uh, there's a rule set or something. Uh, you, you, ha you have to see the way things are done. And uh, we talk about it a lot here. You see behind us, man, there's just boxes and boxes of comics in the studio. Yeah. And that can program your brain in the wrong way. Like uh, you have to you have to deprogram yourself from a lot of that stuff. So, so like, I, I see the attraction to uh, these these process videos, but I, I think I get what you're saying. Sometimes we'll take courses, like we took a screenwriting course, and it felt like there were all these rules which created a barrier to entry that felt like it was insurmountable to even participate. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of the time, you know, people focus on process because it's the thing that's most visible and and in a way the, the thing that's most understandable that's easily understandable but you know when i make a film or animate a scene like the way that i draw it is it's just a means of being able to convey the idea which is the reason why i'm creating a film so it doesn't really matter you know whether it's drawn in pencil or or pen or on a tablet, um, as long as the idea that I'm trying to convey is then communicated to the viewer, you, you know, the, the particular medium to me is really not the, you know, it, the, the, the substrate, I mean, I, I think of it in terms of, you know, the, the physical substrate of the, the idea is, is, is completely unimportant. So, um, you know, if I use computer animation, if I use 2D hand-drawn animation, if I use um, you know, live action for that, that matter. This is that, uh, you know, I always say there's no magic pen. You know, I spent 10 years asking all these cartoonists I like, like, what do they draw with? And, you know, at some point you realize that, that the tool really doesn't matter, uh, you know. Well, well I, I, I won't go so far as to say, I mean, technique does matter to me, okay? But the thing is, um, when a lot of... Well, I also teach. I expect somebody who draws to have at least the technical skill to be able to draw in such a way that what they're what they've drawn is not um, confusing or ambiguous. Um, it's only when you get beyond that point where that you start your work starts to become interesting. Like if you're if you if you're stuck at the stage where you know you're you're, you're talking about. Um, how to draw a hand correctly, you know, then you shouldn't even be showing your work in public. And so many of the artists who I, you know, I, I see, they have galleries and, I mean, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to piss off a lot of people, but, for, uh, but, but, but honestly, a, a lot of the people who are showing their work in public should not be doing it. They're, they're not ready, okay? Get to a point where, you know, you are, no longer showing off the way you draw because 
quite honestly, I don't think that's that interesting. It's um, what you can do with with your drawings, with 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 those skills. I mean, it, it's in the case of drawing, I find that in general, people have a much lower threshold of what they think is an acceptable level of skill. But I think that with music, for example, there's a much higher expectation that, you know, if you get up on a stage and you perform and you don't know how to play your instrument correctly, then the audience isn't going to stand for it. You know, they don't tolerate that. With drawing, I see a lot of cases where people publish their work and their work just is not is not suitable for, for, for public display. And yet they're doing it and people stand for it. And people should not. <laughs> <laughs> There's the nerve wracking piece. Like as a, as a student, when I went to art school, I really thought that like, I was gonna be surrounded with a bunch of people with this sort of same kind of uh, drive and had the same like sort of basic level of, of proficiency uh, because I just assumed like, you know, a kid doesn't get a basketball scholarship to learn to play basketball in college. So like, why would it be that way with the arts? And, uh, and it felt that way a little bit. Now you went to Cal arts. I, I imagine yeah. that there was a lot of like a high level of craft amongst, amongst your peer group there. It seems like a lot of, a lot of people you went to school with went on to, to, to change animation uh, in the, yeah. in the eighties and forward. And some people became pretty prominent artists you're a teacher now. Um, do you see a difference between the sort of general student body in terms of ability yeah, when you were in school different. compared to it's now? Is it the same? Is it different? It's completely different. Yeah, the landscape is completely different. I mean, animation is actually a viable career these days, and a lot of people get into it. And, you know, most big schools have an animation program. Um, back when I was at CalArts, there were very few pl places in the world where you could study animation. CalArts was, was one of the few, and there weren't that many people. You know, most people didn't even know, most general people, if you just told somebody on the street that you are doing animation, they wouldn't even know what animation was. Um, you'd have to explain to them. And um, in 1979, 1980, which is when I was going to CalArts, uh, there was really only a couple. There was Disney Studios that was producing animation. They were only making like one animated movie every five years. And then there was Bakshi. And I did my first job working with him. And then there was, there was TV animation. But um, a lot of those studios were closing down at the time. Um, and if you were going to CalArts studying animation. I mean, it was an exciting time because, um, as you said, a lot of the people that I did go to school with ended up you know, changing the whole animation, like revitalizing the animation industry. But uh, it wasn't a very realistic thing to, to, to pursue as a career, not like, not like today. Ironically, though, it meant that in both cases, you had a lot of students who were not really, um, who don't really belong in an animation program in the eighties, because there were so few people who were interested in studying it, that they would take all this, they would take a lot of students who didn't really, shouldn't qualify. <laughs> um, and, and 
today they just um a lot of people i think start deciding that they're going to get into animation without realizing how difficult it is and so they the problem i i see right now is that they um, a lot of students underestimate um and so they a lot of them drop out after they realize how difficult it actually is and especially the way i teach which is i you know i'm I, i'm i'm I don't coddle my students, um, and th they appreciate that actually. Um, the ones who are good, they're surprised when I criticize their work because they say, "Well, you know, you, you you're actually giving me criticism, which 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 they can use." Uh, a lot of professors don't do that, especially at a uh, at a school like uh, USC. Uh, yeah, they just expect to be told that everything they're doing is fine and keep doing what they're doing. I wanted to uh, just spend another minute or so on the process uh, versus idea. Was this something, when you started in animation, were you more on the process side? Did something happen or, or have you always been about just the idea uh, as being the most important I've always part? been, a, no, I've never been a process person. I mean, uh, inevitably, I think when you're young, younger and you're starting out, you're more focused on understanding the process. And so you're, you're going to be inevitably somewhat focused on that, but I was never about the process. Um, from the beginning, I always wanted to use my animation as a means of. Uh, well, this 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 is a completely different topic, and you know this is very interesting. But you know, as an artist, you're try, you're constantly trying to justify what you're doing because I think that the public perception is that drawing or art or filmmaking is somehow non-essential that it's somehow a, a luxury. And in that sense, you're constantly trying to justify what you're doing because you're saying, well, why don't you do something useful, like be a doctor or a lawyer or something? Like, why, you know, what, what is all this animation stuff? And so um, early on, you know, I was, I see this with a lot of young people getting into the business. And so they're very, involved in this debate over well, what is it we're, we're doing, like, what is the purpose of, of making animated films. It gets defined in this very kind of arbitrary dichotomy of some people want to define it as um, entertainment. And I, I don't like using that word, but that's, that, 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 it's commonly talked about in terms of, are you trying to entertain or are you trying to deliver some kind of message, or are you trying? Are you trying to um, teach? And, and I mean, people say they want to. They want to use their. <laughs> we had this debate at CalArts, like the, the the teachers wanted to know if you know we were just trying to entertain or if we were trying to deliver a message. The, the students, the, the faculty at CalArts at the time, um, who were all Disney people, they said, like, forget about trying to deliver a message. You know, it's, it's for entertainment. Now, myself, I never looked at that as a real dichotomy because, you know, what you're talking about is um, when people say entertainment, like what they really mean is, what they mean when they say that is they mean escapism. Um, because entertainment is actually the wrong word. Um, entertainment is not 
a goal. Like it, it's wrong to say that the purpose of making a film or the purpose of going to see a film is to be entertained. Um, that is not the goal. Um, entertainment is a means. So whether your purpose or your goal is to provide escapism or to deliver a message, you're always going to try to make it entertaining or in, in other words, engaging to your audience. Those two, those two things are not exclusive to each other because you know, in order to effectively deliver a message, you have to be entertaining. I mean, the words that I use are escapism and didacticism. So, you know, delivering a message is to be didactic. And I'm not interested in doing either one of those things. I'm not interested in escapism or didacticism. And I, I, don't, I don't think that an, artist, an artist's role is to be didactic. I don't think that an artist has any great authority to be able to teach either moral messages or political messages. A lot of propaganda artwork uh, out there these days, man. Yeah, and a lot of bad art, you know, tries to get by by, by having good intentions. Um, and <laughs> that's a good way to put I know, it. I, I, know, <laughs> I, I know I'm going to piss off some people, but you know, um, like I used to love Art Spiegelman when he was doing stuff like Arcade, but when he did Mouse, like you know, the the art went like as far as I'm concerned, became much less interesting. And it was really about the good intentions. And um, um, I know you you you, you, you talked about um, Mouse on your on your show, but that that's a that's a good example of that. Um, um, yeah, I just I just see a lot of artists, you know, using the excuse of um, you know of. <laughs> their politics or, you know, or their, their um, moralizing, you know, uh, as a way to produce mediocre art. It's a real, we, we call it a cheap pop, man. You get, the, you get the cheap pop by sort of catering to that crowd. You put a yeah. piece out on Twitter or something, you'll get more retweets or something mm -hmm. than, uh, you know, yeah. putting out something a little bit more, you know, from, from think, the gut or something. That, yeah. In a, in a way, Jan Flucht was kind of a reaction against that, actually, because um, I, I think if you can manage to, um, how, what's the word? Uh, I mean, you know, anytime you talk, talk about art, you end up sounding very pretentious and highfalutin because it's, it's, it's really hard. To We're talk all among about friends here. It's all, it's all good, man. Safe, safe territory. It's really, it's really it's, it's hard to talk about, you know, artistic ambition without, you know, sound, sounding um, self-aggrandizing. Art to me is much more about, well, okay, so, so, so I said that I'm not interested in escapism and I'm not interested in didacticism. So what am I, what am I interested in? So that, that could very well be your question. So I was just about to ask. <laughs> but, um, you know, all art is, and you, and I'll start by saying this, that art is not a luxury, okay? So um, there are certain things that everybody needs in society to, to survive and to, and to live. And one is, you, you know, you need food, you need shelter, you need clothing, but you also need communication. And that's what art is, art is communication. And, and to me, what communication is, is what you're trying to do is you're um, you have an intended meaning or an, 
a way of understanding that you are trying to impart to another person. That's the purpose of communication. So you understand something, you want the other person to understand what you understand. You want to share that understanding, okay? And by understanding, what, what, one way of defining that is that you see a particular meaning in either an event or a phenomenon or an object. And um, it's when you discover meaning in something in life. For me, you know, that's what triggers the impulse to communicate. And, you know, whether it's communicating through art or communicating through just a daily conversation or communicating to your students um, or communicating to my, to my, my child. It's like, so what you're trying to do as an artist is that you're trying to give that experience of discovering meaning that you had, but you're not doing it by a means of exposition. You're giving it, and that's why I, I, I describe film as an experiential medium. It's not a visual medium, it's an experiential medium. And um, I differentiate that between a film and let's say a book, when you read a when you read a story in a book, that is not an experiential medium. It's a symbolic medium because words do not give, an, give you a, an experience of the senses. What you're doing is you're, the extent that you're using your power of sight, your, your vision, is to recognize symbols written on a page and then, you know, there's a decoding process going on when you know you, you read a you read a word which is a symbol of a real thing. <laughs> Film in that sense is much more like experiencing an event the way you do in real life, in the sense that you're experience you're experiencing it through your senses and whatever meaning you 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 gain from that experience is a process of inference. If you use a lot of words to explain an event, the meaning of an event, then you're using um, exposition as your means of conveying meaning. So we all learn in English class that there are two basic ways of understanding the meaning of a word. You know, one is that you can look it up in a dictionary, and the other way you can understand it is through its context. You can see how it's used in context. Um, so when you're making a film, always use context. Don't use exposition, okay? Because, um, you know, an example that I use, there's a lot of examples that I use, but um, uh, it really pisses me off when I'm watching a movie and um, a character says to another character, I love you, for example. It's very common. <laughs> Don't do that. Like. I'm just, in order for me to understand that this character loves that character, it's like I need to be able to infer it through what they're doing. But don't tell me, okay? Once you tell me, it's like you've explained the joke. Like, don't explain the joke and it's not funny, okay? And if you tell me that person A loves person B, then I just have to kind of take your word for it. But I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling the emotion, okay? And also, don't tell me that um, you have to do something, that it's urgent for you to do something. Don't do that. Like, that's explaining the joke. It's like, I need to be able to feel it. I need to be able to infer it through context. And that's what filmmaking is. Filmmaking is about creating a context 
for the audience to understand, to, to gain understanding. So fascinating to, to hear that because I'm, I'm thinking about Aeon Flux and, and, and uh, you know, my favorites of the, of, of the episodes and things and how in the hands of somebody else, how it could have turned into propaganda material or um, exposition or spoon feeding us a lot of uh, ideas in terms of good and bad. You know, there's a lot of ambiguity in Aeon Flux. Specifically, I'm thinking about um, the there's... You know, like two cities, Monica, Bregna. There's an episode where people are trying to cross the border and there's a clear like kind of DMZ, like no-go zone and Aeon can sneak back and forth, no problem. If it was anybody else, if it was any other kind of animation or TV for that matter, we would know what the good side is, what the bad side is. Uh, there would be a reason that you would want to go over. Like there would just be all of this spoon feeding that was done. And that is one of the things that really fascinates me about, about uh, Aeon Flux because uh, the general audience, we see it a lot with book reviews and uh, you see it sometimes in more adventurous films, they will not spell out who's the good character. Like the audience wants to identify with the character. They need to know who the antagonist and protagonist is. Aeon Flux didn't do that, and no. it was the 90s. I feel like I would almost be shocking now, but I, I can't even imagine how, how something like that can well, get I'll sold tell in you, the 90s. You know, <laughs> one of the few places that um, ran a review in like a newspaper was the Los Angeles Times, and they accused the creator, the author, me, <laughs> of being lazy because I hadn't figured out who, who, who was good and who was bad and who was the hero and who was the villain. And that was the entire point. It's like, you're supposed to be able to, to watch the show and look at in each instance contextually, Oh, well, this character is doing this, which results in that. And therefore, you know, they're actually doing something, I, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll use these words, but, you know, the, they're the villain and, or they're the hero in this particular story because it's not it's not going to be the same. And I'm, not, I'm never going to tell you like and that's much closer to the way things are in real life. It's like you, you anybody is capable of doing the right thing or the wrong thing, you know, depending on the circumstance. And and very often in the case of Eon Flux, I was very deliberately. Um, putting the characters in situations where they had to do something bad in the process of trying to achieve something good in the end. And, um, you know, that's, that's always the, you know, that's the, the constant moral dilemma that you always face is that like, are you going to do this little bad thing in order to achieve this greater good thing? And is that, is the possibility that you might fail? Is it, is it worth, is it worth it? Because sometimes in the case of Jan Flux, it's like she will have to do something bad in order to do something that, she, you know, in, for her is going to be um, a, a greater good. But sometimes she fails. Even, so, even as a kid watching, watching the liquid television stuff, watching Aeon Flux like run down a corridor, shoot down some soldiers. I'm conditioned by American comic books. Clearly, she's the hero. Like, I don't know what an Aeon Flux is. It's, you know, it's an overarching thing, but 
you know, this is clearly the hero, cuts down a soldier, dying in a gurgling in a puddle of blood. Another soldier comes over, takes off her mask, and, and this is this is a couple. These are human beings, yeah. you know. You never see underneath the helmet of a Star Wars <laughs> stormtrooper, and that really got me to sort of pay attention a little bit more because I was conditioned on the old way, uh, the common way, I guess, and it was confusing but really, really captivating. And then as you get older, you keep watching the stuff. It just is bringing about even more ideas. It's, it's really thoughtful. And I can't think of another piece of animation that I, that I could consider to be adult in, in America. Really, I, I, can't, I can't think of a second one. But, but like somewhere in, the, in this conversation, I do want to hear some recommendations because there were some good ones in interviews that you've done. And yeah. I went off and, and, and checked some of that stuff out. Um, Peter, was Aeon Flux the first time that you really um, found, you know, like like an outlet for your communication in your animation art? Like like up to that point, were you frustrated by your experiences in animation? Yeah, well, um, I, actually, it's not quite the case. I started out after working with Bakshi. I I went to work at Disney. And um, I was lucky in the sense that I wasn't just working as a, um, as a staff artist on some big animated production. I, I was put in development. So um, I was writing and, and designing stuff. Um, I mean, people probably know this already, but you should know that most of the projects that are developed at a big studio like Disney's, they, they, they don't ultimately get produced. And so I was there for two years and I worked on several projects. Nothing that I ever worked on actually made it into production. <laughs> but um, I enjoy the development process and, you know, and, and creating something from scratch. And so in a sense, I was given the opportunity to have that outlet of you know, doing something that was uh, personally fulfilling creatively, but the fact that it nothing ever got made, actually made, was frustrating in the end. And so um, in that sense, I didn't actually get to express myself. I, I don't think that I was ready. I, it, was, it was kind of uh, a strange time to be at Disney Studios. They were still trying to figure out what they were going to be doing going forward. And um, they had a strategy where they would take young animators straight out of CalArts, which is what I was at the time. And they would um, kind of let them go wild and, 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 and see if they came up with anything. And, you know, at the time, um, Tim Burton was there and he was kind of in the same boat. And um, he's so prolific that he ended up, I mean, so they actually ended up producing some of his stuff like uh, his Hansel and Gretel episode. <laughs> But um, um, John Laster was there, and um, Henry Selleck was there. Um, I worked with Henry Selleck for a brief time over at Disney. But then, um, uh, I and then I, I left Disney, and then I went to work for Marvel, and so that's when I started working on Transformers. And I just wanted a lot of because working at Disney, I just worked in, in development and had no production experience. I wanted a lot of production experiences so working on something like transformers on on a tv show where you have a hot 
a tight schedule and um, it's just the opposite of working at a place like Disney. It's like every, everything that you produce is going to get used and get reused actually. <laughs> um, that, that, like they can't get, they, you can't produce enough. Like they need so much that um, um, I was, I was doing like double duty, like doing, doing, um, uh, even though you're not supposed to on a, I'm trying to remember if it was a, a union job, but, but I ended up doing designs and, and um, storyboards and overseas supervision. Um, that's when I realized that I needed to become a director because working on storyboards, like I was, I would put, a, to address your question, I was, I was putting a lot of my own ideas about how something should be conveyed into my storyboards, but then as a storyboard artist, as a young storyboard artist, you're working for a director. And so the director ultimately takes your storyboards and decides, okay, well, we don't need this. I don't understand this, so I cut it out. And all the stuff that I really wanted to to put into it, you know, that really expressed my, my own view um, would not be understood or be thought of as being um, confusing or unnecessary and they would inevitably cut those things out. And so when I did Eon Flux, it was a chance for me to do all the things that everybody always told me that I, I couldn't do. And um, well, you know, it, it was exactly, there, there was absolutely nobody telling me what I couldn't do, um, especially with the Liquid TV Eon Fluxes. Um, and it was very gratifying because you know, all the stuff that I thought was gonna work you know, actually worked when I when I put it on the screen. It's such a cool description of like getting to do all the stuff that you were told you couldn't do. <laughs> That's kind of an amazing. It sounds so good. It sounds too good to be true. Peter, were you surprised by that? I mean, was there any sign like you know the first ten years of your of your career that this might exist? Like there might be outlets where you can just do the things that you know most places wouldn't let you do that that sounds amazing like a like a playground or something that you found you know i think that when you're young you're thinking back on it now i should have been but um at the time when you're young and you're just um you know you feel like you're capable of anything it's like um i wasn't surprised but i i, I did recognize it as a great opportunity um and so i was not concerned about going over budget or spending my own money, which is you know something that I did. And other people working on Liquid TV thought that I was crazy to be putting that much work on something that was low budget. But, you know, guess what? It's like, you know, my, my career took off after that. And a lot of those guys. <laughs> There's only two things that you remember from Liquid Television yeah. in, 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 in a big way. It's, it's Beavis and Butthead and, and it's, it's Aeon Flux. Yeah, and Beavis Butthead wasn't actually made for Liquid. Right. It was it was a, it was it was acquired. Um, uh, so, it had already existed as a short film, but um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was very low budget, but you know, the, the fact that they were just going to allow you to do whatever you wanted, you know, it was, you know, and you were going to have a million people seeing your work every week, um, like. Uh, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't, I couldn't pay to have an opportunity like that. Um, that's one thing that I tell my 
students these days, which is that I think that a lot of times, like, because there were a lot of animators working on liquid television, doing their own little two-minute segments. And um, I think that for a lot of people in, those, in that situation, they kind of want to hang on to their best stuff because they don't think that that's, you know, that it's worth it to give away. And um, what I tell young animators is don't be stingy like that. When the opportunity comes, always give your best. And don't worry about, oh, I'm not going to have anything later on when, when a better opportunity comes. You, you will have, if, if, if you're a creative person, you will, you will come up with something. It's super so. cool thinking about that liquid television as a professional setting where sort of what you're describing is an art school scenario that, that I've seen and experienced plenty of times where there's this arbitrary idea of like grades and you have an assignment or something and you're getting the same grade as somebody else who might have hacked their piece out. But if you go above and beyond, now you have a portfolio piece that you can use in the future and it could springboard into something bigger. Uh, it's, you just have to put all the, as, as much extra work yeah. in as possible. Now you mentioned the budget uh, for Aeon Flux, uh, the shorts, <coughs> the shorts uh, specifically. Uh, these things are scored with beautiful like orchestral music is this where i mean i fit no knowing nothing about film production or anything like that was that like a big chunk of the budget like is there some canned tunes that can be used for something like that no see the music was done by my friend drew newman who also went to cal arts he was an he was an animation student um at cal arts when i was there and um, he happened to have musical abilities, so all the students went to him at, to get their soundtracks. But, you know, he, yeah, I was blown away when I first heard the, the score that he came up with, um, because it, it did sound like an orchestra, but he does it all himself, and it was, very, and it was just as low budget. So, um, but he had the same attitude. It's funny that you bring that up, because um, I just finished uh, putting together a we're putting together a soundtrack box set, which is being released for the first time. It, uh, the, the, the soundtrack to Young Force has never been released before, not officially anyway. So um, he had the same attitude that I did. It was, it was, a, it was just a, a great opportunity to do, to, to do all the things that he wanted to do. And so he was not motivated by um, the need to make money at the time. I mean, he was young and so was I at the time, so we didn't have a lot of expenses, so we were willing to do that. I, I don't, I'm not sure I'd be willing to do it now, um, but, um, but at the time, you know, my advice to, to young people getting started is, you know, don't, you know, don't think that a better opportunity is going to come later. It's like, <laughs> um, you know, always, always give them your best. Um, so. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. But. If, if you're untested, uh, you, you you pretty much have to give that first one away or whatever. Re renegotiate a contract yeah. with uh, your second book or or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah because the the thing is, uh, you know, you're going you're you're going against people who are also you know trying to get that that spot on the um, broadcast schedule. Who are going to be willing to uh, to 
um, give away more. So that's kind of, kind of the wrong way to put it. But but at, yeah, at the beginning, it'll pay you. It'll pay off better in the end if you are willing to give up something um, just to get your work shown. I mean, to to me, that's it's priceless. You know, so 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 you, you may think that you're giving up this this valuable, precious thing that is your idea, that your your creative idea. But at the same time, it's like you know, being given a um, you know you, you know a time slot on a um, on on a TV network. You know, it's something you can't pet, you know you. And just to add a little context to the people at home, you know, our demographic can skew young sometimes. There were 30 channels on the television at the time when when Liquid Television was coming out. There was very limited opportunity and there was almost zero goose egg, freaking subversive kind of material. This was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, Right right now, the landscape is completely different. So I, I I have an original new adult series that I'm trying to get made. But right now everybody is doing it. Like all of the different networks are trying to do um, adult animation. Um, it's, you know, some of it, you know, I thought Arcane is is well done. I don't know if you've been following that. Um, yeah, so that's why I got onto social media was <laughs> to try to get some um, some interest in supporting the kind of work that I'm trying to get produced. Well, well, and let's 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 boost let's boost some eyeballs to that, man. What, what's your Instagram? What other social media platforms do you have? Well, I'm just on Instagram for now. I mean, I avoided I avoided social media for years uh, just because it, you know I just saw it as a huge uh, time time suck, but which it is. But uh, at the same time, I, I think that maybe I came in at, at a good moment because. Um, I have a lot of uh, back backlog of 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 archived material which nobody has seen, and um, it's hard to get a lot of this stuff published because other people own the rights to a lot of it. But Instagram being free, I'm not not making money off of it. So um, in a sense, uh, there's a lot of uh, license you have to be able to show work that you've done um, in a way. That that didn't exist before. And so um, I'm still trying to figure it out, but I'm finding that it's a good way of keeping interest in your work alive and um, generating interest in what you may be doing coming up. It's it's real fun seeing uh, the parallels between the sort of animation business and and, and the the comic book business in terms of you know, just some spiritual ideas and things. And in comics, you would hear about guys like Frank Miller, Scott McCloud, people who were be- becoming acquainted with manga pretty early, and this kind of resistance that uh, that the people of, you know, American comics, uh, the way that they would bristle at that kind of idiom or aesthetic or storytelling sensibility. And uh, I wonder, like, did you find anime early and what was that like to you know a disney and what does a disney animator think of uh 
you know, some sort of well, anime. That, it, it sort of touches on what you were asking me earlier about was I kind of, was I surprised to be able to uh, have the license to do whatever I wanted when I did Liquid TV. And um, the fact is that, so I grew up all over the place. My father was a diplomat, so I was exposed to comics and animation from all over the place, like European comics, Japanese comics, Korean comics, even though at the time when I was growing up, uh, there, there, was, there were far more Japanese comics. And then um, Japanese animation, I grew up on Japanese animation while living in Korea as a kid. And there was a lot of Japanese animation that uh, I was exposed to and which were my favorite kinds. Well, I'll say this. I mean, like all kids, you, you, you grow up with Disney animation and Warner Brothers and Bugs Bunny and all of that. But I never regarded that as something that I could do because it's so polished and the craft is, you know, I mean, I can go off on a whole other, I, there's this whole other <laughs> talk that I could give about um, classical animation versus Japanese animation. But the, uh, the reason why I think that a lot of young artists gravitate towards Japanese animation is that it's not as polished in the sense that you can see that it's made up of drawings and that it's drawn by people. Whereas the ideal when it comes to classical, like Disney style and like character animation is that the whole goal with that kind of animation is to completely erase any trace that what you're looking at is a drawing. So when you look at Mickey Mouse or you look at Bugs Bunny, like those are living beings. They're living like quote people um, who exist, who have a, who have an, their own independent life and existence. Um, the um, Japanese sensibility is completely different. It's, it's much more modernist in that sense. So, um, you know, it's the difference between classical art and modern art. So um, the idea in classicism, like with classicist painting, is that you you hide the technique in order to elevate the subject. So if you look at, you know, and all of all of this happened obviously before photography and photography kind of changed everything. And that's when modernism um, started in, in, in Western art. Um, it, you know, it's funny because a, a lot of students actually don't have this art history. And I, and I, I kind of wonder with a lot of uh, like young artists getting into comics and so forth. But, you know, when you look at a, portrait of Napoleon, you're not supposed to admire the technique of the artist. You're supposed to admire Napoleon, how great Napoleon is. So that's what I mean. So, so the classicist painters painted things like scenes out of the Bible or, or classical mythology. And you're supposed to admire or, or, or current events sometimes, like, like important historical events. Like they would, they would use their paintings as a way of recording that because they didn't have photography. And a famous painter would be, would create the official kind of record of a historical event, you know, uh, whether it's a coronation or some kind of a disaster or, or anything. And, and what, you know, so if you look at a painting like uh, the Raft of the Medusa, you know, you're, you're not really supposed to be admiring the technique of the artist. You're supposed to be um, touched by the he heroism of the, the people on the life raft. 
Um, and then when you when you went to modernism, you know, it, the subject matter was not was not important at all. It was all about technique and the brushstroke. And so when you look at Monet and he's painting, you know, haystacks and people on the street, it's like they're not important subjects at all. It's just it's it, it's it's the act of painting that you're supposed to admire and appreciate. Um, and in that sense, it's you could say that it's a more um, I mean, what they would have, they would have defined it this way is that it was more honest because um, with classicism, you're trying to create an illusion um, that you're looking at something real, even though, you know, it's made up of brushstrokes, but you're trying to hide the brushstrokes. Um, and I compare that to classical animation where, where, where like the Disney ideal is that you're never supposed to see the drawings. Um, you blend the drawings in such a way that you know, you don't know where one drawing ends and the next next one begins. And it's, you know, it has to be seamless. Um, in the same way that you should never, in classical painting, you know, notice the brush strokes. Because you're just supposed to, to see the subject. So in, in, in classical animation, you're trying to create an illusion of life. You're trying to, you know, make the audience believe that Pinocchio is a real living boy or puppet in this case. Um, um, and Japanese animation is, you know, it follows the tradition of Japanese art, which never had a tradition of classicism. You know, Japanese art is all about the brushstroke and it's all about the flat, two-dimensional nature of the picture plane. Um, and for that reason, I think that a lot of modern, like Western modernist artists, you know, when they saw Japanese prints for the first time, they were, you know, they, they said, yeah, this is it, this is, you know, this is what painting should be. And so, um, you know, th they were big fans of, of Asian art. But um, I think that a lot of animation fans, like they need to understand the difference between Japanese animation, you know, having come out, coming, come, come out of a tradition, um, which by Western, a Western definition is modernist because traditional Japanese painting is by Western a Western definition. Um, you know, pe people need to not be confused by the label modern, because modern does not mean contemporary. Right. Modern means you know it's a it's a it's a departure from classicism. That's what makes something modern. Um, and it's the um, it's the appreciation of the artist's process as opposed to the subject matter. And it applies to all different media. It applies to writing. I mean, you can, you can, you can, you know, what a modernist writer is somebody who, whose main subject is the, the, the voice of the writer, not, not the subject of you know, his fictional characters. Would it have been uh, Japanese animation that attracted you to the, to the medium in the first place? Or, or were you here in the, in the States at that point? Did you see, I don't know, Bambi meets Godzilla? Like, like I can't, I can't imagine, like, you have so well, many ideas. Well, well this, is what I'm, this is what I'm saying is that, you know, when you, when you, of course, I, I loved watching Bambi and Pinocchio and all the classics, but those things just seemed so far beyond what I could be capable of doing that I never thought of becoming an animator to do that. When I looked at Japanese animation, and there's a particular show which never made it to the States. It's called Tiger Mask. But I remember as a kid watching it. Um, but it was about a professional wrestler. And it was drawn in this very rough kind of gestural drawing style. 
and um, and it had a low frame rate, and you could you could really see that it was the handiwork of somebody sitting at the desk and drawing it, and that felt like it was within reach, and it, it felt like oh well I could do that or or I I should try to do that, and so um, I think that for a lot of you know, and I, I see it today with a lot of young people getting into wanting to get into animation is that they're inspired by um, a lot of the Japanese animation that they see, precisely for that reason. Um, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, when, but, but when yeah, Aeon Flux yeah. was was on uh, in the TV I had in my bedroom, it was like fifteen inch, <laughs> right. black and black and white, and. Uh, I remember, like, I thought that the animation was so slick. What I would do is videotape liquid television, pause it frame by frame, and if you remember those old cathode ray tube televisions, a lot of static. You could put a piece of paper up on the TV and it would just stick there. And I was tracing off these characters. Like, I really th thought that I was going to go into animation until I realized, like, I don't know anything about <laughs> the business of it. It seems like there's, like, a... Like comics is democratic in that you sit down, you make the thing, you could send it, you know, a clear place to send it, get a thumbs up, thumbs down. seems like there's like a lot of barriers to entry to, to get to participate in, uh, in animation. Like I'm imagining everybody has to go through school, right? Like, like, no, no, actually that's not true. Um, some of the best animators that I know never went to art school and never studied animation formally. Uh, they just did it. You know, it's funny, like a lot of artists, and I'm sure, you know, with a lot of comic book artists, a lot of them are self-taught. Um, and if you're good, you know, you're going to get good whether you, you went to school or not. And I know a lot of, you know, the flip side of that is I know a lot of people who spent a lot of time in art school, <laughs> but who never made it, you know, were never able to have a career. Um, would you Would you buy, like... Uh pre-punched paper with the little Ames guide thing to the pegboard no, um, when you were a kid doing flip books so or something? When I first started animation, actually, um, I didn't have access to things like that. And, uh, you know, it, 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 I, went to, I went to high school on the East Coast and um, um, I started making animated films when I was 16. So and I was shoot, shooting them on Super 8 film. Um, this is way before video recorders. And so um, I just used typing paper. So um, like, like I would use paper like this and um, I would just line up the edges without any kind of registration pins. And, you know, that was close enough. It's actually what Windsor McKay did when he, he was doing Gertie the Dinosaur is that you would just line up the you, you just need two two sides like one corner to line up um and then when i went to cal arts um no they made us punch our own paper <laughs> that we had we had to hold uh, like like uh professional hole punch um for for animation use so, um, and then I, I ended up buying one of those. Those myself. things are like $900. <laughs> um, I bought one used from somebody who was 
getting rid of his, so I, 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 I did pretty well. What were your sixteen-year-old films like? Like how complex would these things be in terms of subject matter and say runtime? Very seconds? complex. Very complex. Um, the reason being is that um, I like to move the camera, and without a proper camera stand, like you can't really create camera moves by panning artwork so I had to draw all my camera moves so um, not only would I move the camera side to side and up and down but I would move it along the z-axis so you know a, a lot of what I did and that was kind of the, the signature I guess style you could say that you know made my work uh, stand out from a lot of my CalArts peers is that I would do a lot of hand-drawn um, camera moves. You know, I'm really fascinated by this. Like, have you been keeping up with with media? Like, did you digitize it to, to tape later? Is it on DVD? Can we can we see this on uh, Instagram at some point? <laughs> well, I still have the drawings, but um, you know, all of that was shot on eight millimeter, and um, I may have a sixteen millimeter print of it somewhere. But like, good luck trying to find a sixteen millimeter projector or or moviola. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff, I, I'm fine if it never, ever sees the light of day. It's um, interesting that you were doing that as a teenager because I feel like that's such a, a big part of Aeon Flux and, you know, what we see there with, with the motion of both characters and camera. Uh, so it's kind of cool that that's been, you know, a part of your work from the beginning. Yeah, well, um, one thing that I, you know... I, one reason why I'd like uh, working overseas, actually, I'll, I'll put it that way. I, I don't, I don't know how how how, how this. Uh, but th one thing that's frustrating about working in animation in the U.S. is that, um, especially in the union system, in the union, the way the labor is divided up in in the union is that um, you're not allowed to do everything. And so uh, if you draw characters, you have to draw characters. If you draw backgrounds, you have to draw backgrounds. If you draw effects, you have to draw effects. And um, I, I like integrating all different elements of the picture together. So um, I think of them as, you know, I don't think of backgrounds and characters as separate elements, visual elements. Like they have to work together. So, um, no, I'm, I'm glad you noticed that because that's a big part of... Uh, of what I try to do is that like I try to I try to make use of every bit of visual information in every frame to to contribute to what I'm trying to say. Because you brought up unions, I, I am I am sort of curious about this, and 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 numbers don't matter in any way. But character designer for Rugrats, uh, does the union take care of you in terms of uh, licensing? Like every no. time there's a Tommy no. Pickles McDonald's no. toy, like do you get taken care of? No. You no, guys need to make time, me your no. labor leader. <laughs> Coming from no, a guy who, whose like, industry but, has no know, unions. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it, you know, it, 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 it's, it's been a big issue for a long time, you know, and, and um, I don't know where things stand right now. With, um, I mean, animation has become a... Uh, the demand for it 
and the market for it has been become great enough that creators these days can um, sometimes negotiate better deals, you know, outside of the union restrictions. So um, um, if you're if you're if you're a big enough name, so usually what they give you is some percentage of merchandising. Um, but who knows? Who knows? You know how how accurately you know you're going to you know all of that's going to get accounted for. Um, if, if we're talking a little bit of the commercial side of this, um, one thing that struck me, Peter, is looking at uh, some of the links that you shared with us is a lot of commercial work that you've done. Um, mm -hmm. how, how, how does that fit in, in sort of your career in terms of creativity? Uh, do you enjoy doing those? You know, and by commercials, yeah, I mean yeah, like 30 yeah. second I, I spots, think, things like that. Yeah, I think it's important. Um, I look at it this way. The, if you do a commercial for like a, a national ad campaign for a, product like Pepsi or, you know, I've done spots for Honda and for Jaguar and for um, Sony TVs. And so these are big brand names. And um, you get, for one thing, you get national exposure. And so the, the great thing for me about animated commercials is that everybody sees them. Whereas an animated TV program if a viewer is not interested in watching animation, they're not, they're just, they're not going to tune into it. So they're not, they'll never see it. But in an animated TV commercial, everybody's going to see it. And so I always see that as an opportunity to expand the audience for animation, because if you can show in a um, national advertising spot, um, a kind of animation that people didn't expect to see or have, have not seen before, then you're exposing them to something that expands their perception of what animation can do. And to me, that's very important as a way of, you know, being able to expand the audience and expand the minds of the existing audience to become receptive to, uh, to different kinds of animation, which is always good. Um, the other aspect of it, which I like, is that uh, compared to working on a TV show, um, you have a better budget and a schedule. So it enables you to, um, to hone your craft and you know, to polish your technique to a degree which you are not going to have the chance to on a TV show. So you can produce a you know, a small concentrated amount of very polished uh, animation on a technical level. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and that's good practice as well. So, Do you uh, find a little more creative freedom with, uh, you, you know, with, with one of the, these brands compared to say, I don't know, doing a feature? It's a challenge. You know, I, I, I actually, it, it, it's, it's really difficult to do like, if there's a if there's thirty second spot, very often, you know, you might have fifteen or twenty seconds of that will be animation, and then there'll be like a ten second tag with the logo and the the product or something, and to you know to try to to try to tell a story, or to try to convey an idea, 
or a concept in 15 or 20 seconds is a really huge challenge, you know, in a way that's, you know, that, that, that creates a flow and, last, and creates a lasting impression. And it teaches you to be efficient um, and it teaches you to be, um, it teaches you to be strict in, in terms of um, getting rid of anything superfluous um, and to communicate with impact and strength. Taking a look at the filmography here, got the Animatrix, Chronicles of Riddick, uh, two, two flicks that uh, I, I would say borrow a little something from, from Aeon Flux. So when they get this opportunity to do this you know, animated piece and, and they hire Peter Chung, clearly they want Peter Chung to be Peter Chung. Or um, did, did they give you a lot of creative freedom to do your contributions? Or uh, did they want that Aeon Flux aesthetic, but they had very specific ideas about how they wanted that, that to look in the final product. Well, Animatrix was a very special case because originally um, I was not part of the original plan. And so they had, um, the Wachowski's idea was that they would explore some of the backstories or some of the side stories to some of the characters from the original Matrix movie. So um, they had, several episodes of the Animatrix, which were supposed to, to give you some more of the backstory to um, the world and also to some of the characters. But then by the time that I came, became involved, um, they had already kind of satisfied that need. And so um, they told me that I could do whatever I wanted, basically. And so I was lucky in that sense. But some of the other directors did not have that freedom. Um, so, um, I came in very late because what happened was one of the other Japanese directors was, um, for some reason, I don't remember exactly why, but they had to, um, there was some kind of a conflict and they had to leave the project. And so there was an opening. And so I made a call when I heard that some of my friends from Madhouse in Japan were working on Animatrix and I wanted in on it. And so I called up Warner Brothers. I, I happened to know an, a producer of at Warner Brothers. I just gave him a call just out of the blue and said, hey, I'd like to be involved in this. And at first the answer was, well, you know, we're already, we're already staffed up. Every, every episode has been accounted for. And so, um, so I, I felt like oh, well, I don't get to go to, go to the ball. And so um, I was kind of um, let it go at that. And then about a month later, or maybe it was like a couple of weeks later, it's like they called me back and they said, oh, you get to go to the ball after all. Because <laughs> the other person dropped out. So, um, so I met with the Wachowskis. And the thing is, um, I knew from having watched the first Matrix that they had seen Eon Flux. Um, I mean, there's a very direct kind of quote, I guess you could put it that way, when when they, they stick that insect through Keanu Reeves's belly button, and it goes inside him. I mean, that's, that's a straight lift from, from one of the Eon Flux episodes. Um, and um, so, um, you know, and then, you know, with the character Trinity, um, they, um, 
yeah, what I, what I found out was that they had originally wanted to bring me on, but they had no way of contacting me. Contacting me, and so when I called them, like they said, "Oh yeah, well let's bring him on." And so um, they were very busy with making Matrix two and three at, at the time, and so at the same time they were being very secretive about where the story was going. And the people who worked on the Animatrix, they only had access to the first movie. And so I had to imagine what Matrix 2 and 3 were going to be like. And so it, I saw it as a chance to create my own sequel to The Matrix um, and how I wanted to see the story go. And so my episode of The Animatrix is, you know, it's kind of, um, I don't know if you want to go into all of this, but... Um, yeah, yes. yeah, yes. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. All of it. Everything. So, so, yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I'd rather talk about the conceptual side rather than the technical side because um, of the process side. But so the original Matrix movie is based on the premise that you can fool the human mind into believing that a simulation is real, right? Um, but it seems like it would work the other way even better because a, an artificial mind is even more susceptible to being convinced that a simulation is real than, than a natural human mind. Um, and in fact, if you look at, for example, uh, they use computer simulations to simulate war scenarios and things like that. And, you know, as far as the computer is concerned, you know, it's a, it's a real war that's happening and, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to, create predictions and, and um, what's the word? Anyway, it's, the, you know, they're playing it out as if it's a real thing that's happening. So it seems like the best weapon that the humans would have to fight against the machines is to convince the machines um, by putting them into a simulation that would um, make them confuse artificial virtual reality with 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 reality because you know i mean um to an artificial mind all reality is virtual um it's actually one of the lines in the in, in the film so that was the basic premise of it and uh, i was kind of disappointed that the movies didn't go in that direction but <laughs> there's some fan theories that this this uh this next movie like is going to go in that direction actually yeah. like there, there's a lot of talk on online that because i a lot of people shared in this idea with you you know that was like the talk of, of the net like that it was this full uh artificial experience so we'll we'll have to see in december whenever whenever that one comes out Peter, uh, you know, you've been teaching since 2013 so i i did want to ask you a little bit about your experience as a teacher and uh, and I'm curious, you know, once again, from a from a creative artistic standpoint, what do you get out of the teaching experience? Well, one thing good about teaching students is that they're much more receptive and they're paying money to be at university and to learn. So um, <laughs> you can actually teach them, um, whereas it's I find that it's much more difficult to teach like professional colleagues. I can give them all kind of advice and say, well, you should do it this way, or, you know, this is a better way to direct 
a scene like this, but usually they don't listen and they're not, um, or they'll listen and they'll nod their head, but they won't, they won't think that it applies to them for some reason. Um, <laughs> I make my students do assignments. So a lot of my teaching is, um, it's not just me theorizing and talking about how, how they should do th things. I tell them, like I give them weekly assignments and they have to actually do them. They have to put it into practice. And a lot of what they, a lot of what I teach is stuff that, um, well, all of it, I, I should say not, I mean, it's all stuff that I've learned through trying to do um, myself, try, trying to make films myself. Um, so there's a lot of things that you realize that, you know, you have these epiphany moments um, working day to day, trying to solve problems as you're making a film. And um, I try to break those down and turn them into lessons and teaching moments. So um, it's an opportunity for me to feel like that knowledge that I've acquired over decades of practicing my craft is not going to get lost, that you know, somehow it's going to get imparted to another generation. Um, of course, they're going to all interpret it differently. I expect them to do that, but they're going to internalize it differently and, you know, make use of it in, you know, in a way that makes sense for them. And, and that's as it should be. But, you know, there are basic principles, which I consider very, very basic that any director should, should, should know and, you know, any, any skills that any director should have. Um, what surprised me working professionally is that Directors don't talk about this stuff. Very often, they're not aware of this stuff. And um, it's shocking to me, actually, when I see a, when I see a um, commercially released feature film by a big studio and the director um, somehow doesn't have the skills, um, which I think are very basic to, you know, to anybody who wants to uh, call themselves a director, I'm not going to go. Into, I'm not going to name names, or I mean, I I do in class. I can. <laughs> I have a lot of examples. Both we'll talk positive, for about ten minutes while we hit, turn this record button off. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, is it as simple? Is it is it stuff like simple things like hundred eighty degree rule and and fundamentals that's, like no, that? No, no, like no, no. I'm I'm talking about stuff that's that that's way beyond that. Okay, good. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean directors know know that you should do that. I mean, th things like, like, um, there are some simple things which, you know, I still see, especially with animation, um, like a lot of people don't understand the, the need to cut on action, for example. Um, you know, they'll cut from a static frame to a static frame, and you should never do that. It's like you always cut in the middle of somebody moving, and that'll, you know, you can violate the 180 degree line also. And, and, and the way to do that is to cut on action. If you, if you cut on action, then that's going to hide the fact that you crossed the line. And I do that. Um, but one thing that I see, I'll just mention a couple of things. Um, well, you know, I'll mention some of the simpler things. Some of the more difficult things would take a long time 
it take an hour to go into. But um, um, one thing that I I see a lot in Japanese animation, I never see it in American animation, especially American TV animation, is that when they move the camera, the camera is always on on the subject, on the on the character that's moving. Um, you shouldn't do that. That's boring. Okay, so um, you can move the camera. Like if 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 your character is moving this way, then you know try moving the camera this way on a different path. And um, it solves a lot of problems that have to do with having to do with continuity and hookup. And it also other advantages are is that it compresses time. The other thing it does is it expands the world outside of the frame because very often the problem with animation is that you're so focused on the subject that you it, you don't get a sense of there being a wider world outside of the picture frame. So um, one thing that a lot of American animation directors like, and I'm talking about TV animation directors now, is that they don't appreciate the value of negative space. Um, and it's very important to include shots of nothing um, to create emphasis. Because if you have an important shot of somebody's close-up of them registering some kind of emotion, let's say, and that's a very key um, frame um, that you want to have, that you want, you want to make sure that it has a lot of impact, it's that's always going to have more impact if you proceed it with a shot of nothing, of no, nothing important, like a blank sky or, you know. Um, the problem with a lot of American animation that I see is that um, everything is a climax. Like, <laughs> and when everything is a climax, nothing is a climax. Um, and they're always on the characters' faces all the time. Um, and... Um, you know, when I was doing Eon Flux for, for MTV, doing the half-hour show, their broadcast standards and practices gave me a note. This was their worst note, which was that, um, and I'm trying to remember, I think it applied only to female characters. And of course, you know, Eon Flux being the, the main character is female, um, is that they would never allow a shot of just a body part that did not include the head because they thought that that was objectifying so you couldn't just have her like i i would want to have like a camera angle like you know with her legs in the foreground and they said no you can't do that like her head has to be in the shot um so anyway um Peter, the, yeah. this is the, this gets into sort of what I brought up at, at, at the very beginning, where I like uh, through this conversation, like you you have a lot of ideas, a lot of opinions. You you're a singular creator attracted to this to this medium that requires all this other input, uh, like creatively, like a lot of movie directors. John Waters has photography. Scorsese does photography. Like. Are there some things that, that you do without any other input? 
or or is is the collaboration part of the a, a, attraction of your practice well uh you know it's, it's that's a strange question for me it's i i don't think of it in those terms <laughs> um um, you know, that's a question coming from, from, you know, we sit here in our little rooms all by ourselves and we don't answer to anybody, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so like working with anybody or having somebody tell us you can't have this kind of camera angle or whatever, like, it's just a different notion. Um, well, I, no, I mean, I, do, I don't enjoy getting notes from, you know, standards and practices or from executive student like network executives, but I have learned to be more skillful in um, in negotiating, maybe navigating is the word, um, studio notes. So um, I I don't take it personally, you know, when somebody tells me don't do that or do it differently. Um, I see it as a a prompt to do better and it and very often you can address the note without giving up the thing that you wanted to do but by just doing it in a way that is going to be more accessible and in a way to me that that's that's a that's a win-win you know it makes it better and um your audience is going to like it better is is there a little bit of politics that that, that goes into that i'm thinking about uh episode of aeon flux where a lady tries to cross the border and she gets that little thing in her spine that Trevor has to dig yeah. in her back and very sexual. And I think in the audio commentary track uh, on the on the uh, DVD, yeah. like your first go is Trevor has his tongue in there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. like you get standards of practice to turn that one down so you can have him like finger in her little back hole and have an orgasm. Like, is that is that... Can we be honest? Well, you know, they didn't let us put it, him put his finger in. Oh, yeah, and it's I like wanted, tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said he, he can't put his finger in. He, he has to use instruments, <laughs> which to me is like even more, you know, it's um, more sadistic. I mean, like, um, but uh, uh, the funny thing about that, I don't know if I put this on the commentary, but the weirdest thing about that note was that they said that um, when we were recording her her um, voice track, they said that she can sound like she's in distress or in pain, but she cannot sound like she's enjoying herself. That one, that note blew me away um, because they had no problem. Um, with uh, with the violence, they had a problem with the sex. Um, so for the DVD, I put the um, sexual sound back in. <laughs> it wasn't there on the broadcast version, and you know, um, I hope that nobody remembers the broadcast version. Um, that's the most random, like, like that's kind of unbelievable. Very it, American. It would be a weird thing to say to somebody. <laughs> very, very, very American. Like the violence is cool. Right. Sex, no go. If, if, if you were producing this in France, it would be the other way around. Yeah. 
Yeah. Speaking of French, uh, uh, Mobius, like, did you yeah. connect with him uh, when you were working on Matrix, or, or how did you meet him? Uh, well, he was in Los Angeles for a long time. He came to Los Angeles working on Tron, and I was at Disney Studios, actually, at the same time when he was working on Tron. Um, and I used to go into the Tron production area and you know see his storyboards and just you know was blown away i mean I, you know, i've been a fan of his since high school but um it wasn't until after he left disney he and a guy named arnie wong who was one of the uh animation producers on tron i mean he he was anyway so he, they were trying to do this animated mobius movie and so they made this trailer and it was a project called Internal Transfer. And um, I was uh, an animator on that. So um, I got to meet him and um, I speak French, by the way. So um, I went to French school because my, my dad was a diplomat. And so, um, so I got to know him. I went out to dinner with him and got to know him. And um, um, he, he was very complimentary. And actually, the design that ended up in internal transfer, which is this, I don't know if you saw the trailer, but there's this mechanical head that is kind of this negative space that forms out of this. Um, I gave him that idea, actually, because he was, he was kind of stuck trying to design this kind of um, super being, this kind of uh, celestial kind of cybernetic super being. And um, I had done some sketches and, you know, I thought, well, why, why can't the face be made up mostly of empty space, but just kind of draw the outline of it? And he, he liked that idea. And I was still working on it and I was still, still trying to perfect that idea. And like, like in a matter of a, a couple of hours, he created this like beautiful, perfect interpretation or rendition of that concept, you know, and, and it was just amazing to watch him work. I mean, he was... I've worked with a lot of artists. He was by far and away the, the single most amazing. Um, I mean, he was, you know, I, I, I create a lot of waste when I draw. Like I, I, I'll draw a lot of rough drafts and um, with Mobius, like there is not a single wasted line. Like every, every time his, pen touches paper it's you know it's perfect um and uh um yeah i just i, I it was it was it was really just awe-inspiring to, to see somebody you know with that level of mastery that makes me think about uh the some of the people that you've employed over the years are uh people who come from from comics uh, i wonder if they possess any kind of ability that you notice that is different, not better or worse, maybe better, maybe worse than somebody who's like a, a, a studied animation pra practitioner. Well, that, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very different art form. I mean, so um, um, I, I did hire some comic book artists whose work that I admired because I, I was I was a fan of their work in comics. But I would have to say that um trying to think now um almost none of them was actually suited 
for animation work. Um, it's a completely different discipline, and they're great at they're great comic book artists, but um, uh, in general, I find that people who've done a lot of comic book work are not they their skill set does not translate to doing good storyboards for animation. Um, funnily enough, actually, a guy who ended up being very successful in comics started out doing storyboards for Eon Flux. So he went the other way. He started out doing storyboards and ended up doing comics. That's Eric Kennedy. Um, and he was a background designer and he also did storyboards um, when he was starting out. But they, he was just starting out and then he went on to a very uh, you know his work, right? Yeah, he, he, there were some of those Verotic, uh comics that, that have the kind of yeah. <laughs> uh, Aeon Flux energy. I, I have a Street Angel by him in one of the Street Angel hardcovers. Oh, cool. But yeah, he, he definitely shows some of that Aeon Flux, uh, you know, in his, and, in his foreshortening and some of his uh, compositions. No, and, and he goes back and forth to doing animation work. He, I, I don't know if he still does it, but, you know, uh, he, he, while he was doing comics, he would, he would still go back and work on animation, doing storyboards. And he was very good at both. I mean, he, he understood the, the medium uh, in a way that a lot of comic book artists don't. Um, you just have to be, you, you just have to draw a lot more. Um, you have to break down the action a lot, a lot further when you're doing storyboards. Um, so, uh, and then the, the other guy I think who does understand um, is Kyle Baker is another guy I worked with. Um, but he, but he goes back and forth between animation and comics, and he's very good at both. Before, before we get out of here, we're going, coming up on like hour 45. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, some recommendations or things that, that you dig in the form of comics and animation. Like I said, I saw some of these interviews, and you, you called out a couple animated pieces. This is old interview, you know, yeah. stuff from the 90s, and I dug those those. Uh, shorts out and was just blown away so uh comic recommendations manga animation anything that's like swirling around in your head well right you know now. i gotta i have to confess to you and this is gonna piss off your audience it's gonna piss you you guys off as well but but you I, can't I've become very, uh, i've become very impatient with comics lately i used to read comics but i i i think maybe the the more i get involved in directing um i just feel and i, I should i should catch that in um, uh, something else, which is that I did try my hand at doing a comic story. Um, and this was for a game company. Um, and it was the only time I did a comic book story. Um, it was pretty short. Um, but um, it just felt very, very, I felt constricted because I felt like um, things that I could convey in movement and in animation was, it was just very cumbersome. And uh, um, I would say it, just, it wasn't as satisfying <laughs> because um, the thing with what I found, um, and of course, you, you know, you're, you, you, you'll probably disagree and, and that's fine and it's fine, but just my own experience is that um, after drawing a comic book page, what I draw is what you get. And I didn't like that. 
<laughs> because that's not the case with animation. Because what you draw is not what you get. What you get on screen is something. When it starts to move and it flows, you, what, you're, what you're seeing and what you're giving to the audience is, is not what you drew. It, 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 has a, it has an extra magical quality to it, you know, which, is, uh, which is the movement which didn't exist on the page. Um, so that kind of alchemy, if you can think of it like that, you need, you're, 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 you're trans, transferring something which is made out of one material into something else when you're creating animation. Um, but I wasn't getting that with comics. I was feeling like, you know, I was creating drawings and in the end I'm getting a drawing. Um, so, um, um, having said that, um, there are some comic book artists and some comics that I do come back to and, you know, I find them constantly inspiring. Well, Mobius is one and pretty much anything that he's done. Um, my favorite Japanese artist is uh, Kazuo Umezu. And are you familiar with his work? Yeah, Drifting Classroom, Cat Eye uh, Boy, 14. Never 14 heard of him. Is, yeah, 14 is fantastic, yeah. I just discovered uh, that for the first time when I went to Japan in, in 2019. I was just digging for books, and it was this... Uh, yeah. The one, what it, the image that attracted me was this guy walking around with a rooster head mask. Yeah. It's just like one of the scariest images. Yeah. Um, Watashi no Shingo is another good one. Um, baptism. Um, and then Makoto-chan uh, is fantastic. What I love about his work is that it's... Uh, you're not quite sure how you're supposed to take it. It's, it's, it's very... <laughs> um, um it's um it's like what what i what i admire in certain artists the kind of artists and i guess i, I would count myself as being one of them is that um you're making art in a way that is not catering to any expectation so the problem i have with you know, and again, I'm going to say something that's going to piss off a lot of people. But when I when I look at a lot of portfolios or people's Instagram pages, um, what I see very often is an artist who is trying to please a particular audience, um, and and you can detect it in their work, and you can see that they're begging for approval. And when I see that and I detect that, it's an immediate, um, I. I don't know how to describe it. It's like there's there's a slight barrier for me. Um, I, I don't feel like I connect with with work uh, where I, where I detect that happening. So, um, Umezu's work is great because you know he doesn't try to polish it or make it pretty. It is it is just what he <laughs> it, it it just pours out of him. You know, and he's incredibly prolific. Um, and it's constantly surprising. Anyway, I don't want to go on and on about it. But uh, in animation, Yuasa, you know, to me is really, really exciting and and uh, um, constantly surprising. And you know, it, it, he, he's kind of the same way. It's like his work is not extremely 
he doesn't spend a lot of time polishing his work. It's like he, there's so much of it that he just makes it, takes it to the point where it's clear enough to convey the idea and then he moves on. Um, unlike a lot of uh, Japanese animation where it's just, they just put highlights and shadows and shadows upon shadows and it's, you know, effects upon effects and it's, it gets mannered. It's, it's so layered with, with mannerism that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't detect the, the spont spontaneous act. Um, but Yuasa, um, you know, there's a director I really, really like, and I'm sure you've seen his work, but his name is pretty unknown. Um, it's um, Tetsuro Araki. Um, so, <laughs> so um, uh, Death Note and Attack on Titan and um, High School of the Dead. Um, but his his episodes are are. I mean, he's a he's a real director's director, uh, and I I get a lot of inspiration from his work. When uh, the, you wrote an essay about uh, comics and animation, uh, the sort of failures of, of the comic page, and, and you equated it with, with stuff that you saw in animation as well. It was an essay from, from like 1998, a very, very dismal time uh, in the medium of, of comics in a lot of ways. But there were some gems out, out there, like the works of guys like Dan Klaus and Things Were Happening on the independent scene. Do, are those kind of comics on your uh, radar? Comics like 8-Ball at the at the time? You know, at the time when those were, be, were coming out, um, I, I was following them for a while. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the titles. Um, something about a fist in a velvet glove. Uh, yeah, velvet glove cast in iron. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... I kind of don't, I didn't really see them as comics so much as they were just, um, it was like reading somebody's, uh, I don't know, I, I, I guess for me, they just kind of didn't really leave a lasting impression. Like I didn't find anything useful out of, out of, out of that material. I think that with a lot of comics and with films, I, um, and with animation, is that I don't think that it's a good use of the medium to be too, um, what's the word, slice of life. I think that um, if I want to, if I want to experience slice of life, I'll just live my life. I have plenty of slice of life in my life. In my real life, I don't need to read a book to get slice of life, um, or to go to the movies, you know, to, to see something that's unadorned. I, I want adornment, you know. I want to see, I want to see something heightened. So when I go to see a movie, I want to see something that is mythic, iconic, something that I can't experience in my own slice of life, um, and you know, it especially applies to animation i think um so you know i and i see a lot of you know i see it a lot in my students actually and i kind of discourage it it's like they they make 
their own student films and it's all slice of life and it's all like this very internal kind of like somebody feeling lonely and like sitting on a corner looking at flowers and you know remembering their childhood or something like that and it's like don't do that like that's not why i want to watch a film how do your character do something how do your character do something unique okay so the thing that i tell my students is that you know um there are certain things that happen in your life that are one-time events that are unique and special um those make good subjects for a film so if you're creating a fictional character imagine that fictional character's life and imagine a singular event in that character's life that happened one time that that is a pivotal moment in that character's life make your film about that okay don't make your film about something that happens every day like nobody wants to see that i don't want to see that like if i had a choice between seeing a film about something that happens in somebody's daily life versus a film and it doesn't have to be a film it can be a clip on youtube okay so am i going to click on a clip on youtube that is a singular event that happened once in the history of the universe or am i going to click click on a clip of something that happens every day well i'm going to i'm going to click on the first one every time so i tell my students make your films about unique events okay so um um so that's my answer to that <laughs> i love it i love it you got anything else jimmy no i'm just i'm ready for the peter chung like uh how to book I, the, the book on directing turn that course into into something that i can take home and read and study because all of this sounds great i'm gonna make we, a pledge we, right we, here we, today look, we, we, we can keep talking turn off the camera <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna make a pledge right here today Peter, I'm never going to have my characters say that they love each other. <laughs> it ain't happening. Right, right. No, yeah, you're explaining the joke. Everybody, see, that's the thing. Everybody understands that a comedian should never explain the joke, okay? If you do, you're, you're, you shouldn't be on stage telling jokes, okay? What they don't, for some reason, they let filmmakers explain the joke. So, the fact that character A loves character B. That's the punchline. That's the thing that I'm supposed to get through watching how they behave. And I'm supposed to go, oh, that character loves this character. And that's how I get to feel it. But if you just tell me, oh, I love you, then I don't get to feel it because you, you've, just, you've, just, you've just explained the joke. And so like, I don't get to laugh if you explain why it's funny. I don't have, get to have that moment of realization, that epiphany of going, oh, that's funny. Because you've 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 put the pieces together and go oh yeah that's that is funny, and that's why you laugh and that's a genuine laugh okay. But if you tell me oh I got to go do this thing because if I don't then this other thing like don't tell me that like let me understand that that's what you have to do. And having that realization that's going to make it feel urgent. But if you tell me it's urgent then I'm not going to feel that it's urgent. Totally. Like there, there was a, um, the David Mamet masterclass. Uh, he, he talks about that. He says like, you know, you never go to a party, meet a guy and hear them say, here, let me tell you a couple of things about me and my past and all the experiences <laughs> that I've been through. It, 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 it rings as false immediately. Yeah. Like whatever he's saying yeah. is a lie. So you're pandering to the audience and every medium has this thing, you, these traps that you could fall into. Don't use adverbs. You're moving quickly. Yeah. How about you uh, sell, sell me on the scene a little <laughs> bit more and let us feel that you're moving us quickly. Neil Gaiman's master class is like, 
if I want you to cry, I'm going to kill a unicorn and it's going to break your heart. <laughs> Super fun. Peter, where is that Instagram account it's located? Peter K. Chung. So I came late to Instagram. So um, believe it or not, there are other people named Peter Chung in the world. So Peter Chung was already taken. So it's Peter K. Chung. Um, and uh, I have a little Eon Flux in my in my icon as my icon so look for that and um i am hoping and planning actually more than a hope i'm i'm planning to open a patreon um so I, that, that um, makes me like yeah. do you ever think of using crowd like crowdfunding kickstarter something like that to completely facilitate the production well of, i'm of hoping that patreon will help with that um, and then um, beyond that, um, I am interested, and I know this is very controversial, but I am interested in um, selling NFTs as well. So um, that's a way of uh, generating funds to support. And, you know, it's not an end in itself. It's a means towards financing my, my animation projects. Um, but uh at this stage in my career i'm not willing to give away everything the way i did with the on flux which is near the beginning but now i need to be able to hang on to some control and some ownership of what i've created that's that sounds fantastic when you uh when you get your patreon up uh you know this video is going to go up sunday but when you get your patreon up uh let me know uh, send me the link. I could put that in the description because I feel like this interview is going to be seen by a, by a lot of people over time, and uh, that'll attract some some people there. But uh, I mean, I have a million questions, but I do think we should we should leave it. Uh, you were very very generous with your time. Uh, right now, is there anything else you're working on that you want to sort of tease or let people? Well, know? I, as I said, I do have my my original new adult animated project. I'm not going to talk about that right now because I haven't really, I mean, I, I, I've shared it with a few people professionally, but, but I, I'm not really ready to announce it publicly yet. Um, and other than that, I've just, uh, actually, I'm still in the process of, uh, I, I've been working on this show called um, Victor and Valentino for Cartoon Network. And um, one thing that I haven't um, announced is that I'm, Right now, I'm directing a special episode of Victor and Valentino, which I wrote and designed and directed myself and storyboarded the whole thing. And um, I'll be supervising the animation. And that'll be coming out sometime early next year. But um, it's a special episode. Like one of, uh, one of the animators, he looked at the animatic and said, this is Eon Flux for kids. Because it's, a, it's, it's an episode that doesn't have any dialogue. And it kind of was my attempt to put into practice all of the lessons that I try to teach my students. So in a way, it was, I kind of did it as a, as a teaching tool <laughs> where I tried to um, apply all of the filmmaking principles uh, that I try to teach. Because, you know, sometimes I think with students, um, you, can, you can talk about it and talk about it and, you know, give them theory and reasons. But unless you show that it can be done, it's like they're going to be skeptical. So. Um, man, so that I'm sounds like a them, good episode. I'm showing them wait. how it can. I'm showing them how it can be done. So, um, Peter, did yeah, you? Yeah. So look out for that. 
did you do the opening title sequence for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Yeah, I, well, I storyboarded that, yeah. And I did actually, did, I did some of the animation for that as well. Iconic. It's we would love, we would love mean, to that, have you that, come that, back. Oh, that that was what? the first one I did, and it's, I, I don't like that opening. It, it, was, it was kind of a joke because I thought that, I thought that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was a joke. Um, <laughs> at, the, at the time that I was working on it, I, I had no idea it was going to take off. I just thought, I, I actually felt sorry for the toy company because the toy company was putting up all this money to produce this animated show, which was going to you know, promote their toy line. But it was based on this obscure comic book that nobody had heard of, which had this ridiculous title. But it turns out that, you know, the title was great. I mean, the, like kids, you know, the, the title, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, made the show. Because what kid isn't going to tune in to watch something that has that title? You know? so. Totally. It made the comic, you know, they sold it, yeah. you know, in some ads and some trade publications, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It has a has a flow to it, a little iambic pentameter built in to the, the, the cadence and everything. Peter, when uh, when you have this next project, if you, uh, you know, have a have a media docket that you're going to do, we'd love to talk to you again to promote yeah, sure. uh, these future ideas. Uh, I got a lot out of this conversa conversation. I'm excited to turn this drawing, this this chair right around <laughs> and get right back to business, man. So so thank yeah. you very much right. for coming by. Everybody, okay, sure. join Peter's Instagram. Uh, there will be a link in the description below this video and uh, appreciate you taking the time with us, sir. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Okay, I enjoyed it and thank you very much.